0: Welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy. This season is all about intentional comfort, and we'll be taking a look at the crossroads of the inspiration, intention, and action that you can take to bring more comfort and joy to your everyday. This is your host, Paula Jenkins. Welcome to episode 318 here on Jumpstart Your Joy. This week on the show, I'm excited to be looking back on the interview that I had with Sonia Renee Taylor. She joined me last season. And of course, this month is all about the intentional comfort of finding your way home. And last week we talked to Emma Lowy and she just released the book, Return to Nature. We talked all about how nature is such a calming and rejuvenating force for us. And it felt like this conversation with Sonia Renee Taylor, the author of The Body Is Not an Apology, is a beautiful thing to consider because here in a capitalist society, we have been indoctrinated to believe that our bodies are bad. Even looking at original sin, which you will hear us talk about, we believe that somehow our bodies are to blame for so many of the problems that we have, and it couldn't be further from the truth. So I really wanted to bring this on and have This add to the discussion of finding your way home because feeling comfortable and at home in your own body is as important as any home (laughs) you will ever have. I want to wish you all a warm welcome and say thank you so much for tuning in this week and always. You can find more information about Sonia and her books and how to get involved with The Body is Not an Apology. It's also a foundation over at the website. It's jumpstartyourjoy.com. You can find the show notes or episode notes for this episode right there on the homepage, or you can tap through them in your app if you are listening on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. (laughs) And be sure, if you're listening there, make sure you're a follower because then you'll get these episodes downloaded to your device every week when they come out. Also, you can sign up for the newsletter on jumpstartyourjoy.com. That comes out about once a week, and it will give you a reminder that there's a new episode up and you can listen to it. So the things that I love about looking back on this conversation with Sonia Renee Taylor, I really loved our conversation about when is joy for joy's sake. She shares this really interesting point about that. It's when joy is for joy's sake, when there is no residue to it. And I love how she explains this, so you're going to want to tune into that. It's early on in the conversation. And then just really hearing about the point where she wrote uh, The Body is Not an Apology. I think it's a great reminder for us all to embrace radical self-love, understand why it's difficult to do so in our society, and also to understand about giving from your overflow. I know we are all so in a place of overwhelm and feeling overburdened these days, but understanding that kind of taking care of yourself and only giving from your overflow makes sure that you are giving from a place that feels really good and you're aligned with what you need for yourself to feel healthy and centered. So welcome to the show, Sonia Renee Taylor.
1: Thanks for having me. I
0: appreciate it. Such a treat to have you here. I imagine that most people know who you are and know what you do. Of course, you're the author of The Body Is Not an Apology and the brand new workbook, which I do have right here and very much enjoyed. Woo-hoo, it's going across the screen. Your Body Is Not an Apology workbook, Tools for Living Radical Self-Love. And uh, I'm so glad you're here. The first question that I like to ask everyone is what... Tell us about what you loved most as a child or in school. What were your earliest sparks of joy?
1: So <laughs> I have always been a bit of a performer. I've always loved performing, whatever, you know, I, I was born an extrovert. And so <laughs> I loved creating worlds. I think I've always been interested mm-hmm. in What do they call it? Anthropomorphism. Like when you animate things that are not animated. And that was me. So I made the, you know, the toothbrush and the toothpaste talked and the wash rag and the soap talked and everything talked, (laughs) which much to my parents' chagrin, they're like, you talk enough. We don't need all the other things to talk to, but that was definitely one of them. And my best friend and I have been best friends since we were 10 years old, which is bonkers when I think about Mm -hmm. it, is we used to do these recordings. Where we would interpret like the the Sally Jesse Raphael show or the Hughes show, <laughs> and, so we would, and they were oh always uh, they were it was terrible. The shows were always about the Catholic Church and molestation and. <laughs> I don't know why those were always the shows, but they were always the shows. And then we would do the shows and we would also do the commercial interludes. So we would do the Florida orange juice commercial or the Iron Man beer commercial or the, you know, so-and-so singing lessons commercial. I mean, we have full-on productions. That was probably my biggest joy as a child. So amazing.
0: My best friend and I, at age 10, we also started a radio program on our, our tape recorder. It was PLTS, which please listen <laughs> to this station. I
1: love it. I love
0: it. Yeah. And there was some, you know, neighborhood news reports. It was, and she then became a reporter and here I am. But
1: yes, we see the directions it takes us, right?
0: <laughs> well, and then I know you've been a poet and I I don't know do you want to talk a little bit about how some of that performance maybe has tied through
1: in what you do today um sure yeah so i mean like i said i think i was always going to perform in some way i think it was just very much who i was and you know thank goodness my parents found a channel for me relatively early and so in eighth in uh fifth grade my music teacher was like she should go to the performing arts school (laughs) Uh, and so um, i went to performing arts school from middle school through high school Mm -hmm. where you know i majored in musical theater and theater and you know then i left that and you know i thought when i graduated high school i was like gonna go to nyu and study theater you know i chickened out of all of my auditions every single one and instead i ended up going to hampton university which is a, a historically black university in virginia and I majored in sociology. And like my thought at the time was like, I am not going to be poor waiting tables, waiting on my big break. Now, I don't know what made me think majoring in sociology was going to offset whatever financial (laughs) issues I thought I was going to have, but that was my thinking at the time. But, But I still, you know, I sang in concert choir in college. I did musicals in college. It was always, performing was always going to show up in some way as such a central part of my identity. And then after I got out of college, you know, I had a couple of years where I didn't do anything that felt particularly, you know, artistic. I did do a play. There was like a church related play. I did that. Mm -hmm. But then in 2003, I happened to stumble upon open mic poetry and I was like, Mm. oh, wait, I can like get on stage (laughs) and do my own little three minute play. Like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I was like, it only cost me $5 to like get up and do my own show every night. And so I started going to open mics religiously. And then shortly after that discovered Poetry Slam, competitive performance poetry. And it was like, I had landed on the holy grail. I was like, wait a minute, I, I can do my own show. Like I can write my own poem, I can perform it. And then if I win, you'll give me money. (laughs) like yes (laughs) yes 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 sign me up and that quickly became uh not you know i'm not good at hobbies they always become jobs and so poetry performance poetry ended up becoming my career for 12 13 years
0: so amazing well it is like podcasting is that way for that's what i do full-time as well and it's like wait i love this and what do you mean that this gets to be the thing i get to do all day and help mm-hmm. other people do and all that. So yeah, so much fun. Oh, thank you. I can only I, oh, I wish I could have seen you. <laughs> that would have been really, really amazing. Obviously, your book, you're in the second release of this amazing title. The body is not <laughs> an apology is right yeah. here. <laughs> Before we dive into more of this, would you tell us about your definition of radical self love, and how you look at it and the genesis story of how this all came to be for you?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I'll start with the definition. Radical self-love for me is our inherent um, sense of worthiness, enoughness, our inherent divinity and our connection to that inherent divinity. And radical self-love differs from, in some ways, what we call just self-love, what other people talk about when they talk about self-love, because um, radical, I literally mean the definitions of radical, right? Inherent, Inherent in a thing. And I propose that, you know, our our self-love is inherent in us. We came here this way. We came in right relationship with our bodies and the bodies of others. It is speaking to proposing thoroughgoing or extreme change. And I am advocating a love that is thoroughgoing and extreme in its changes to the ways in which we view and understand humans and bodies and identities and you know, I always say that we have, we already have a very thoroughgoing and extreme way in which we treat bodies today. We're thoroughgoing and extremely violent to bodies that we don't respect. We are mm-hmm. cruel to bodies we don't respect. We are, you know, malicious and mean to our own bodies. We already have that. And so what does it mean to hold a love that is even at a greater capacity toward our bodies and the bodies of others? Yeah. Radical proposes drastic political, economic and social change. And, you know, for me, that is the key piece of why I do this work is that I'm, I am not interested in tending to anyone's individual self-esteem and self-confidence while I wish you well, that's <laughs> well, while, you know, like, I hope that for you, but that doesn't change the material circumstances of my life. Right. And I'm interested in the kind of love that changes the material circumstances of the people who have the most marginalized bodies, of the people who are the most disconnected from opportunity, resource, and care. And I believe that divesting from a system where we think we aren't enough mm-hmm. is actually one of the key ways in which we create that world yeah. and and alter those systems. So I wanna, I'm want i interested in changing the systems of the world, and I'm interested in a love that does that. And then lastly, it's, you know, radical denotes being the foundation of something. And I propose that we have tried building the world on all kinds of things. We've built it on greed and money and power and all of those things. And I mean, we could just look around and see how those experiments have gone. <laughs> and, so, and so I propose, like, what would it look like? I'm, I'm in a great experiment. The experiment is what if we built it on love? Mm-hmm. What would it look like? And so, so, yeah, so that's what radical self-love is to me and why it is radical. Yeah. And then in terms of the origin story, um, I talk about it in the beginning of the book, but, you know, I think that what I find most, what still tickles me the most is the sort of evolutionary nature of, of the body is not an apology and radical self-love. And, you know, I like to say that it's like a conversation with a friend that became a poem, that became a Facebook post, that became a Facebook page, that became a collection of people who wanted to do things around it, that then became a company, that then became a book, that has become an international movement and framework in how people move through the world. And so that, it's almost, you know, I think about it like, you know, when we talk about the Big Bang, and it's like, oh, you started off as an amoeba. Right. And now you're my kid, right? It's like yeah. <laughs> that progression of things, like right. what something begins as and what it wants to be. It's, you know, mm. the natural intelligence that will make it the fullness of itself has really been kind of the genesis of The Body is Not an Apology.
0: Mm, yeah. Ooh, there's so much right in there, too. I'm getting senses that, there, that you have somewhat of a religious background in all of that. And one of the things that fascinates me is... How do we go from a place where even the Genesis story of humanity is based in one where, you know, the creation is good, we're created in the image of the creator. How do we jump from this place of being told, even if we're looking at the Judeo-Christian texts, that we mm-hmm. are inherently good and that we have inherent divinity, but then we, we show up and we're very, probably not slowly told or explained to that. Okay, but it actually works like this. Like, how do do we get in that space where it's like, here's the amazing (laughs) truth. And then, oh, but then you show up and, you know, even in the example of children and babies when you're like, oh, but we need to circumcise you.
1: Like, what? (laughs) We're just going to cut off this part. (laughs) We need to tinker with you perfect. Like, just this most sensitive (laughs) part of you. We're just going to get rid of it. (laughs)
0: Right. Yeah, exactly. You know, all joking aside, like, how – I don't know, can we, let's talk about that. Like, how do you see that happening? How do we go from this amazing story of divine inheritance and then jump to this place of, but it's only for some of these folks that...
1: I think that there's a lot to be said, even inside of this sort of ethos and the teachings of Christianity, both Mm -hmm. Protestant and Catholicism. I think there is something around this idea of original sin Right. Because I feel like the message, what we got was, no, you came here perfect. And then y'all messed up in the Garden of Eden and now everything from there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> All the rest of you aren't perfect anymore. Now you've actually been born in descent. Right. Like that's the narrative right now that I think most of Christianity lives into. Yeah. And so if we are operating from the position that we are, we're not inherently good. Right. That we're actually inherently sinful. Mm-hmm. and that there are all of these things that we have to do to be rectified to God. And and so here's where I think it gets, and this is me just talking in real time. Who knows? I'm making all this up, y'all. So don't, don't message me talking about, you know, Sonia, you're a wrong biblical scholar. I'm not a biblical scholar. This is all conjecture. It's me trying an idea. So I think we had this situation where it was like, right, you were good. Nope. Eve messed it up. Now you're all bad. (laughs) Born into sin. That's the state of the world unless you're reconciled to God. And reconciliation to God requires the suppression of the flesh, right? Mm, Yeah. So what we become is, and here's how you end up into dualism, right? We become a spirit constantly trying to reconcile itself to God inside of a body that is irreconcilable. A body that is inherently sinful right right and so we are constantly relating to our bodies as inherently bad right and but the bodies of others as inherently bad and even if you move away from christianity the ethos of the body as bad and wrong and the ethos as something external will validate me right yeah so that external thing could be like i said the the And, you know, piousness as the reconciliation to God or wealth as the reconciliation to one's self-worth or, you know, power or whatever it is that is outside of me is what I need to figure out how I then become good enough because this isn't good enough. Right. That's my context. (laughs) <laughs>
0: yeah conjecture and theory and well and i that's why i was like oh i want to ask this because this is interesting territory too because then it i mean and so my background i have a religious studies background and love talking mm. about all this stuff and also have a i am christian by whatever baptism i, I feel like there is that inherent problem with where we start then which is yes yeah. yes there's the divinity acknowledged but then there is the fundamental issue with what the flesh and the body then means and how we relate to it because we're almost told then from the beginning because you have a body then you like you have to do all this reconciliation work which is why I really wanted to ask you about it because like how it almost feels like we're set up the system has set us up to be very concerned about the flesh and the body from the beginning, even in these places where it's supposed to be a tale of redemption
1: and like love and divinity and all that. So, yeah. yeah. And that's why I think it's so important for me, I question the source of the message and I, and I question the power entities, the power structures and systems that are delivering the message and what is their buy-in in me believing that I am inherently sinful and bad who wins right and i mean certainly historically the church as a state entity right wins if you are controllable because you are sinful and they are the only thing that can reconcile you to god so for me and i i grew up christian and and the work for me has always been whatever story separates me if i don't believe nothing else in the bible but i believe that i was created in my creator's image then Whatever it is that is the manifestation of divinity that made, you know, and the way I think about it is whatever it is that decided that there should be bees and trees and volcanoes and pickles and <laughs> and whatever else also decided that there should be a Sonya Renee Taylor. Yes. Um, and so I can't be any less divine than all of those creations, right? Which yes. And they are all also manifestations of the divine. And so mm-hmm. anything that would tell me that I am separated from that, which made me, my first instinct is to question that message, who is that coming from? And what do they have to win by telling me that those are the questions that I begin to ask that begin to at least direct me away from I'm the source of the problem, my body is the source of the problem. And it's like, "Mm, there's someone else in this game who really benefits from me thinking that I and my body are the source of the problem.
0: Right. Oh, yeah. And then that leads you into some very interesting places.
1: Yes.
0: Both for yourself and knowing that yes, if we and I believe we are created in that divine image and in that space of enoughness and worthiness and all of that, just as a tree is (laughs) just as the ocean is or whatever, then yeah, who is to say and why would anyone else have the right to say that any of us as individuals are not enough? Yeah, Yeah. that's super powerful. (laughs) <laughs> yes. I'm so glad we went there. Thank you. For- I think it also really nicely ties into a lot of the premise of, of your work in your book is that changing the world is an inside out job, kind of simplifying and boiling it down. And do you want to talk a little bit about that? Like, how do we question or how do we... Isn't it interesting that the reconciliation really isn't with the God or the the systemic piece of it? It's about reconciling what's inside of us and and yeah. maybe shedding the stories that we've been told are true about who each of us is. How do we how do we start that inside out work?
1: Yeah, you know, in the book I talk about it as a thinking, doing, being process. <laughs> and you know, I love distilling. You know, I love it when people are like a boiled down you know, sorry for boiling down. I'm like, no, I love a boiled down version. (laughs) Make it simple, make it plain. Um, And so I talk about this thinking, doing, being process, which is the first step is that we actually have to become intimate with our thoughts. We have to recognize where a certain set of indoctrinations about our beliefs, about who we are, where those live inside of us and how they are already operating in our lives. And I think currently for many of us, those thoughts just happen. And we don't interrogate them. We don't think about them. You know, you know, I always give the example of you go to the, you know, you go to the store, you try on the jeans, they don't fit. And immediately there's something wrong with your body, right? Mm -hmm. Your body's wrong. I'm wrong. And then the spiral of shaming oneself begins. And you don't even think about that. Like you don't, it just goes, right? And so I propose that the first step is to be like, oh, I am, I'm in my shame spiral. Oh, (laughs) I have made myself and my body wrong. Not the makers of the jeans who didn't bother to make a size that fits me appropriately. Not, right? like, not, not the people who have the most power, the most resource, but no, right. me, me, I'm yeah. the one who, So once we raise those thoughts to consciousness so that they aren't just operating on autopilot, then we have choice. Oh, I'm having this thought. And what if I, I can decide that this thought isn't true? That doesn't mean I won't have it. But I don't have to treat it like truth. And if I'm not treating that thought like truth, then that takes me to the doing part. If this isn't the truth, then what would I do? And in the practice of raising our thoughts to consciousness and then being choiceful about the opposite empowering action that we will take instead of the shaming, you know, self-flagellating action that we will take that process of repetition is how we build a radical self-love process, a practice that leads us to the being part. Once I do something often enough, it's what I become, I'm that. Oh, it it just emanates from me, right? right? And so the goal is to create such a practice of interrupting the thoughts of disconnection, of not enoughness, and then taking opposite action in such a consistent basis that like any other repetition, it becomes the new normal that we do.
0: Yeah. Mm, That's really good stuff. One of my favorite, (laughs) possibly strange practices that I really like to do to catch myself is lots of times if there's something going on in my head, I'll say, is this coming from a place of love or fear?
1: Mm -hmm. And it like
0: stops it right in its tracks because if it's not love... Then even if it's like fear of missing out or fear of some of being judged or fear of, then I'm like, okay, then we got it. We are not going that direction or yeah. buying that thing or doing that stuff, whatever Absolutely. it is, because it's, it ends the thing for me, or at mm. least makes me aware of the thing.
1: Yeah. Raises it to consciousness, raises it to yeah. consciousness. Absolutely. And in, in the book, I talk about the process of being fear facing, which is to say like fear exists, right? Fear facingness is really about saying, right? Like fear Fear is a helpful, natural instinct. It's useful. It's the, re- I tell people all the time, it's the reason I don't run up on pythons, healthy, appropriate fear. <laughs> and what I seek to do is recognize the fear that's coming up in me. Is it, is it indicating actual danger? Cause that's what fear mm-hmm. is supposed to do. <laughs> it's supposed to indicate actual danger. And if I am not in actual danger, then what would it look like to choicefully be fear-facing and move forward through Mm -hmm. whatever that is, right? But it's good information, right? Like I'm I'm a a firm believer we should hear and acknowledge our fear, and then we should decide, is it giving me information that is, you know, based on actual danger, based on my circumstance and condition, or is it bringing up old stories that aren't actually accurate right now?
0: Well, and that's really – that's kind of like courage in action, right, is the the role of like seeing – seeing a fear and deciding there's something more important than the fear itself. Yes, yes, yes. yes, yes. Strangely, I think that might be a quote from the Princess Diaries. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Meg Cabot. (laughs) Just totally snorted. (laughs) I know. This is already awesome. Where we get the inspiration. Pretty cool. Yeah. Well and I know you also talked a little bit about most of the fear is just the fog i love that quote i mean you could see so much of your writing is so so poetic and like there's great imagery that comes in and you're like yes the fear is the fog i don't know if how that plays into what you were just talking about as well
1: yeah well that's the choice to move anyway right like yeah danger right if the fear is a brick wall stop (laughs) right Right. (laughs) yes quit don't go But if the fear is a fog, then it is penetrable. It means we can move, you know. And it doesn't mean be reckless. It doesn't mean you know be without caution. But it does mean you can continue to move in the direction that you're going. And I think that's that's how I try to navigate fear.
0: And I think the imagery there too, or the the, kind of the visual of it, like you may not even be able to see everything around you when you enter into the fog, but you just know it's just fog.
1: yeah, yeah. Like you can get through
0: it <laughs> well, i mean one of the things that i i've n- noticed having worked with joy for seven years there's the piece of it the muse part of the muse of it for me is there's the hard part of recognizing when collective joy isn't possible or mm-hmm. is only possible at the expense of someone else's well-being or mm-hmm. or whatever it, whoever they are and And I think there's something interesting about that. You in the book brought up the pieces about kind of framework of buying things as far as like best interest or detriment buying. And I was like, there's a connection here about those things because it's like, where am I doing things collectively for joy in best interest? And where am I doing things that I'm like, ooh, there's detriment. Like this, yeah. is, this is the territory I don't want to be in. So yeah. I don't know if you have any, any pieces of that and how it connects to joy for you. Or- so the
1: thing that you're, you know, what you're talking about and what it brings up for me is, you know, like joy doesn't have a residue, you know, mm-hmm. like yes. there's no residue on joy. When you have yeah. it, it just overwhelms. It's beautiful. It's, and if there is a residue, that's information for you. That's information to say mm-hmm. this might not actually be best interest buying this might actually be detriment buying there is something on it that is not about simply living into the you know most joyful highest vibration of myself in the world there is something that says i'm trying to clean up something i'm trying to fix something i'm trying to extract something externally because it's coming from a place of lack or scarcity. That's what the residue piece is. And so I think if we can start noticing and getting present with, is there a residue after I do a thing? Then, Mm -hmm. and, and how can I let that be an indicator of whether or not I'm actually in a joy practice, I'm in a best interest buying practice, or if I'm in a detriment practice?
0: Yes, ooh, that is super helpful. Because you're right, joy just is, and it, it just keeps is. going, it just and it grows. feeds itself, and yeah. It, yeah, ooh, that's magical. The residue bit. Yeah, that's Thank
1: the first I've ever said that. I'm gonna hold that one. It's <laughs> all yours. It's <laughs> day when jumpstart your joy. <laughs> oh my goodness,
0: Sonia, this is so amazing. The other thing that really struck me is around the implicit bias mm. as part of our native language and like us showing up here again you know being pure and divine and all of that and then we get taught into the bias and the other pieces i know you you referenced that it was kind of like a child born in france would speak french and yeah. and so we just learn this this framework of the hierarchy and all of that but that a lot of the transformation on speaking to ourselves in loving ways is Like kind of breaking that mold and how do we do that? Like, it's so hard. Like we have the language, like it's natural pretty much, Yeah. but it's not like, how how do we break through?
1: Again, it's about interruption, right? Like for me that, you know, I like to one, tell everybody I am never proposing that this is easy work. It is challenging work. (laughs) You know, I'm not like, oh, then you just do this and and you're in radical self-love and everything's great. It's never anything I'm going to tell anybody. It's hard work. And it is challenging work, it's, and it's exhausting, and it and it can be really confronting because we have to look at all the ways we've been operating inside of this system unchecked, complicit for all of our lives, you know. And that feels yeah. gross. But the reason that I offer the French analogy is that what I'm proposing is, of course. <laughs> and for me, if I start from well, of course, <laughs> then I don't. Then what shame is there to have, like? I, when I said this to someone the other day, I was like, if I spent the night soaking in marinara sauce, like, of course I smell like garlic today. Like, of course, right? <laughs> like, like that's yeah. not unusual or strange. It just is right. And I don't, I don't need to feel ashamed of smelling like garlic. I've been in marinara sauce all day. And so I offer that to us as the end to say, well, if I start from, of course I have these biases. Of course, I have this indoctrination that places my body in a hierarchy of bodies. Of course, there are ways in which I've come to believe that about myself. Of course, there are conscious and subconscious ways that I've come to believe that about other people's bodies. Of course, I have. Now, the question becomes, oh, I don't like that. That has a residue on it. So what do I do? I start to get conscious and bring it to my awareness so that I can start to move it. And it's less about, it in that way, it moves the shame. Because for me, the barrier to doing the work is the shame. The barrier is the, oh, I'm a bad person because I have this. Oh, I'm failing because I have this. And all of that is just the system looping you back in, right? It's like, oh, uh uh-oh, you almost got free. What can we hook into you to tell you again you're not enough?
0: Yeah, it's totally the matrix
1: (laughs) bringing us back in. Bringing you back in. And so if you really let yourself start from the place of, of course I have caused harm. I have been indoctrinated to cause harm. Of course I have, you know, of course I still have these negative thoughts about my body and other people's bodies. I've been indoctrinated to have these thoughts. So the journey is just, every day I work to have less of those thoughts. Every day I work to at least raise those thoughts to consciousness so I'm not being manipulated by this system, right? And yes, it, and I'm in a world where I still live inside of all of these constructs. So it will still happen. It will still come up. I will still be judgmental about my own body and the bodies of others. I will still have areas where I have bias. And my work every day is to try to have a little less, to move toward the, the reconciliation that is actually me with my own divinity. That's the reconciliation. Can I come back yeah. to me? to the fullness of me, can I come back to my own radical self-love? And that yeah, you know, and again, that's an iterative process. It's not a like I did it, I arrived at the island of radical self-love and I can celebrate, I'm done. It is it is an everyday I reinvite myself to take this journey.
0: Yeah. That's delicious. And I as you're explaining that piece, it kind of layers in a new nuance with with the cornerstone quote. I mean, that became that for whatever reason for the show, but which was from Henry Nowen, which is joy is a choice and we must keep choosing it every day. And it's that same, like we see the residue and even though we see it, we're choosing to be aware of it and to then go for the higher vibration of of love and joy and acceptance and divinity. Exactly. Oh, Sonia, that's amazing. (laughs) Having a moment Yay! over here. <laughs> this is so good. This is, yeah. Well, and it is. It's so interesting to catch ourselves in those thoughts because I think all of us have, in various ways, a, a part of our own body that we're like, oh yeah, that's that's not enough. I also really love, of course, tying back into the apology piece about how you say that when we genuinely love ourselves, there's no need to be sorry, mm-hmm. and that you brought in the idea of the culture of apology. Could you tell us a little bit like how that layers in with self, you know, radical self-love?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those aspects of indoctrination that keep us tied to these sort of systems of externalizing our value and worth. And they are by making us constantly feel bad for who we are and what we are and always figuring out new ways to apologize for who and what we are, right? And so, and there are ways that are very subtle, right? They're, They're, you know... You know, I'm thinking about a friend of mine, um, Amber J. Phillips, who three years ago had a really, you know, ugly experience on um, American Airlines, where she's a big black woman and her arm touched the other woman's arm on the air on the airplane, and you know, and the woman began to body shame her, and then, you know, and then presented herself as the victim, and Amber got removed from the flight, and I think about all the ways in which you know, large bodies are always apologizing for the space they're taking up. I think about the ways in which disabled bodies apologize for the way that, you know, I had a conversation I mentioned in the book, a show that I've done several times called Melanin and Myelin, and it's about black folks with MS. And, you know, one of the hosts was talking about, you know, how difficult it was for her to decide to use a cane to walk. And part of that was like, you know, I don't want to take up so much space on the sidewalk, you know, right. and I think about that in, in reference to the amount of people who practically mow me over if I don't get out of their way when they're walking, <laughs> usually white men, you know, who have no problems. You know, I talk about manspreading in the book, like having to get on the bus and take up six seats with all of their <laughs> everything. And And so I think about the ways in which Bodies are constantly told that they should apologize and the ways in which we acquiesce to that in ways we don't even notice, you know, small or ways that we think are cultural, but are really like rooted in our deep beliefs about bodies. I think about, you know, as a child being told not to stay in the sun, I'm going to get too dark. And the story is your darkness is an apology. Your darkness is a thing to be apologizing for. And so you should manage that. You know so yeah there are all kinds of ways and i think it's important for us to get intimate with what are the ways in which we've been apologizing for our bodies because that's the place to start those are the places where we can begin our journey oh i've totally been apologizing for my size i've been apologizing for my weight i've been apologizing for my loud whatever it is and then one by one saying okay well what if i what would i do differently again thinking doing being what would i do differently Mm -hmm. If i decided i wasn't apologizing for that anymore
0: and then eventually getting your thoughts to the place where you can really love that part Part of of you yeah even though maybe it was something you felt previously that you had to well that the system wanted you to apologize for yeah yeah
1: and it takes time you know but part of what it is again it's a deconditioning process we've been taught like that's bad and wrong and that will continue to pop up sometimes but the more that we practice, the more that we are in the practice of reclaiming those parts of ourselves, the less we become in, they stop being the thing that um, is wrong. And then we begin to naturally question the message that that is wrong is the thing that becomes wrong, <laughs> right? Like that becomes the thing that we now direct our, no, who who is saying that? And why do you say that? What, you know, again, what what do you have? What investment do you have in me continuing to apologize? And that becomes the direction of our target rather than ourselves. Right. And that is the inside
0: out work of it too, is understanding that, yeah, that there's an invested interest in someone else keeping this whole thing going but when i know different i can do different you can do different and you and challenge
1: that thing that external thing that outside thing that system that structure that keeps trying to get us to buy into that message then our oh, we have all kinds of new energy now because we're not so busy wrestling and fighting ourselves that's like oh yeah take down the system let's go do that
0: how once you're in that space where you're like yes, I'm energized. How does one stay in self-care when they're trying to bring down the system, right? Because it's so easy to enter into that space yeah. and either speak a, a truth that needs to be pointed out or whatever, and then get kind of caught up in the trigger of it or the exhaustion of it. How does one care for oneself in that space? Yeah.
1: I mean, so for me, you know, I'm a proponent, and I say this probably every place that I go, that I only give from my overflow. Like you can't have what's in my cup. What's in my cup is for me. <laughs> it's what sustains me. And so I make sure that I have a practice that fills my cup, you know, and that practice is, you know, that practice is Baldwin. <laughs> you know, that practice is the process of surrounding myself by beauty, the process of being in community with others, the process of having deep and intimate and connected relationships with people who are close to me, who like know me, know me. Those are all the the things that I do to keep filling my own cup. And when I am full, then I give. When I'm full, that's when I go fight the system. (laughs) I don't fight the system when I'm half full and in my sludge and my dredge, because I don't have anything of substance to give. And the reason I live in New Zealand is because inside of the U.S., I was just The sludge at the bottom of the cup, because I, I was in such constant survival mode that I couldn't get to thriving to really give what I have to give for my overflow. And so whatever that is, you know, and it won't be moving for everybody. It'll be whatever it is for you, but find out what that is for you. And again, it goes back to, this is an inside out job. And so as soon as you find yourself trying to do an outside in job, you know, that you're off track, go back to yourself, come back home.
0: Mm. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to gnaw on that. I only give from my overflow Mm -hmm. for a long time. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that. That's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. If someone wants to find out more about radical self-love, about you, Sonia, where can they find you and what kind of things do you have going on that people could get involved in?
1: Absolutely. So it depends on what you want from me. (laughs) If you just want to know more about the work that I do and peruse and get caught up on some of the things that I do, you can do that one at thebodyisnotanapology.com. And you can learn about The Body Is Not An Apology as a movement and an organization. We've been around for 10 years at this point now. And so you can go and do that there. If you just want to know about sort of my thoughts, my ideas about things, you can hang out on Instagram uh, at Sonia Renee Taylor, where I post videos and those sorts of things. I recently stopped doing engagement on Instagram though. So you can go there and see videos, but you can't talk to me there. Cause I don't go there. Um, but if you want to be in community with me, you can join me at my Patreon community at patreon.com, Sonia Renee Taylor, and there. You see all those videos and we also actually have dialogue community. I answer questions. The goal is to really build a thriving radical self-love community over there. And so that's what we're Mm -hmm. doing in that space. Like I said, there are four books that came out this year, so you can (laughs) hang out with all of those. The Body's Not an Apology, the second edition, Your Body's Not an Apology workbook. There is also, I just co-edited the anthology of the International Handbook of Fat Studies with uh, doctor Kat Krapp-Pause. Here in New Zealand, that just came out in April. So tell your library to order because it's really, really ridiculously expensive. Um, and then I have a new piece out in an anthology by Tarana Burke and Brene Brown called "You Are Your Best Thing," and it's an excerpt from an upcoming memoir project. So if you want to, you know, get a sneak peek into that, which is really different. It's a very different thing than any of the other writing that I have out in the world. Get that anthology. And then there are all kinds of other things. You know, I'm, I I speak regularly in all kinds of places, so you may find me around there. I am doing a project right now with Ebony Janice Moore and seven other brilliant writers called The Black Girl Mixtape, um, where we we're creating a live theater project based off of the, uh, a book called The People Could Fly, which was about the slave rebellion at Igbo Island, which was the largest mass slave rebellion. And then they define it as a mass suicide. 300 Mm -hmm. um, enslaved Africans overthrew their captors and then jumped into the ocean. And the story that we tell is that they flew back home. And so Mm -hmm. we are recreating that telling right now. And so there's lots of ways to be involved in that and to support that work. You can find that on my Instagram as well. And then the last thing I'll say is. Last year, I co-founded, along with two other folks, a project called Buy Back Black Debt, which is a reparations-inspired project to reconcile the economic inequality that comes as a result of white supremacist delusion and racism. And so if you want to be a part of building the new economy, building the new world, finding powerful ways that we can be in... Um, right relationship with one another. You can also find the link to become a contributor for Buy Back Black Debt on my Instagram page under my link tree.
0: Thank you very much. I will link up to those in the episode notes. And if my last question that I like to ask everyone is, what are three ways that you can think of to jumpstart joy in your life, in the world, or in other people's Uh,
1: lives? Ways to jumpstart joy in your life is, so think about your answer to the very first question, what was the thing that brought you joy as a kid? And then go do it. Do it as an adult. <laughs> go reclaim your childhood joy and see how it feels in your body today as a grown-up. That's one. To re jumpstart joy in the world. I think there are kindness is so underrated and underactivated in our world today. And so, you know, go be kind to a person who would find it wildly surprising that you were kind to them. Go do that and and just notice how it impacts you and fills your heart. So that do that out in the world. And then the last one was your radical self-love journey is contagious. It spreads, radical self-love spreads the same way self-loathing spreads. And so go on your radical self-love journey and watch the way in which it brings joy in the lives of the people that love you. Take it on as an experiment.
0: Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much for all of your lovely answers and for your
1: amazing books and work in this world. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you.
0: This has been such a delight to look back on this conversation. And I I really enjoyed this discussion. If you enjoyed it as well, I encourage you to check out her books the body is not an apology the body is not an apology workbook that came out last year and also check out her website there's a lot of amazing work there and you could join her patreon and help support what she's doing i am a supporter and have been since she was on the show and so you can find all the links to all of that in the show notes at jumpstartyourjoy.com and while you're there you will also find the link i'm going to be putting up the video version of this interview so you'll get to see me talking with sonia you'll get to meet her dog who joined us for part of the conversation it was very sweet and that'll be up on youtube later this week but i'll put the link up there for you when it is live and then next week on the show i'm going to be joined by laura joyce davis who is the host behind shelter in place she released this podcast just as california was locking down back in 2020 for the pandemic And it's really interesting to talk to her about how sheltering in place kind of changed her notion of what home is and how to find home. The week after that, I will be back with a solo cast where I'm gonna be talking about finding your heart's second home based on a a visit that I had in the last couple weeks. And then we'll talk to Jen Oglesby as we round out how to find your way back home. So thank you all for tuning in. I hope you'll come back for all those future episodes. And until then, I hope that your days are filled with so much joy.